Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hi, I'm Linda Regano, co-host of the WAM Podcast. It's an honor to be your host, where I get to introduce listeners to amazing women who are making a real difference. With our podcast, you'll get to hear inspirational stories, both personal and professional challenges, how their backgrounds have helped to shape who they are today, and more importantly, how they're giving back to their communities and oftentimes the world. Joining me today is Grania Lynch, who heads up supply chain transparency for Accenture's newly acquired ESP Enterprise System Partners Group. As you're about to hear, Grania is a fearless champion of supply chain and logistics transparency. She has an amazing background, not to mention the fact that she is joining us on vacation from Ireland. So please join me in a warm welcome for Grania. Grania, thank you for joining our show. Thank you so much for having me, Linda. And I should say you're not on vacation in Ireland. You actually live in Ireland. I live in Ireland and I'm taking a couple of days at home, a staycation. (laughs) As warranted by COVID-19. Yeah. Right. We're all in a staycation mode, I think. We all are. You you have such an interesting background. If you could just dive right in and just share with our listeners more about you, your family, and who are your early influencers? Sure. I just want to say thank you so much for having me on here. It's really quite an honor. I think that what I've noticed over the last, I suppose, couple of decades is that I'm quite the bossy person. And I think that has come from my background where I've come from a series of firstborns. My father was a firstborn in his family and his father was firstborn in his family to such an extent that my grandfather, whose own father died at a very young age, ended up being more or less looking after his younger brothers and sisters. And they used to refer to him as the boss man. So from about the age of 17, my father, my grandfather was called the boss man. So I'm the Firstborn of the firstborn of the boss man. And, uh, <laughs> Which makes you the boss queen. <laughs> so I, I have to see what part of that history I, I, that I want to use at different times. And so I would definitely say that one of my biggest influencers, just in terms of trying to understand you know, where my place is in the world and everything, was definitely my dad. My dad helped me an awful lot in terms of sharing love of nature, love of mountains, love of hills, love of maps, understanding where food comes from, understanding how to grow your own vegetables. And very much in our family, we've come from, I'm a member of a family of potato farmers, and that goes back for generations, and market gardeners as well, growing and selling potatoes, carrots, parsnips, um, seasonal vegetables. So that has always stayed with us. The first crop of the potatoes that are harvested in around May of every year is a celebration. It's it's really like Christmas. (laughs) They have to be eaten with butter and salt and nothing else. That tradition goes across all of my cousins, second cousins, third cousins, and I don't know how many everywhere else they are in the world, including UK and, and USA. That's fabulous. And what about your mom? I think you had described her to me once as the classic Irish mom. Absolutely. Classic Irish mom, extremely supportive. I, and I describe her as the ultra and ultimate project manager, you know, the, the controller, the financial controller, the person who gets everything done. She's an amazing person. Both of my parents are still alive and, and were absolutely outstanding as influencers in my life. 
And when you went off to school, were you the first in your generation to go to college? No, I think I probably was one of the first in some of my family to go to school, certainly to graduate with a university degree. Although my dad actually went back to university at the same time, and we graduated from our respective courses and respective education together on the same day. Oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, so like we're very strong in terms of education. I suppose education comes to different people and to different families and in different opportunities and they come at different times. And so whilst those opportunities wouldn't have existed from my parents when they were in their late teens and early 20s, they certainly took opportunities to go back and educate themselves as time went by. So my father did end up going back to university and he got his Bachelor of Science and he went on to do a master's. And my mother, who was very strong in preschool education, she ran her own preschool business for 13 years. And she also did an awful lot of training and education and ended up training other preschool teachers in different types of arts and crafts and different types of skills so that they could help kids come along. So I've come from a very strong background of, I suppose, two different, actually a couple of different influences, really. Very strong in education in very strong with the attitude that education opens doors and very strong links to the land and a lot strong links to the fact that food comes from the land and that also, I suppose the third aspect is that you have to enjoy your surroundings, your appreciation of your environment, of hills and valleys and water. And being in Ireland, we're never too far away from the sea. So appreciation for that as well. And I think that those three aspects really, as I reflect on, have really stayed with me. Absolutely. We'll touch on a number of them later in your professional career, but maybe you could also talk a little bit about, you've had several strong female mentors along the way. Could you talk a little bit about that you had mentioned the university lecturer who had taught you never to assume that people know what you're talking about? That's right. This is a colleague that I was working, when I was working as a researcher, I was working in the National Maritime College of Ireland, and that was an institute that helped to train seafarers, people going to sea as navigation officers and engineers. And I had an extremely well-accomplished mentor in that space, Dr. Val Cummins. And it's really interesting. She must have taught me an awful lot. But what really sticks out to me is that when you're trying to explain complicated ideas, first of all, keep it simple. And don't assume that people really understand what you're talking about. Don't assume that they already know about your particular capability, your particular depth of knowledge, and try and find a way to make what you know come alive and keep it simple in that way. I learned from her. I learned from seeing her sell her ideas. She was incredible at the time, during the time I was working, to really try and influence a lot of people. And I could see how her advice was really working for her as well. If we could go back a little bit on your education. So you have a bachelor's in science and a master's in electronics. That's which right. Which I find interesting. Yeah, that's a bit unusual. Now, I know that you had a scholarship that was incredibly important. You want to talk a, a little bit about that? Yeah, I would. I'd like to mention that. So the school that I was going to for both my Bachelor of Science and my Master's of Engineering in Electronics, it was the Cork Institute of Technology. 
And during the time that I was there, there was a very important scholarship available for students who wanted to go and experience another culture and also to share their, our own culture. So there is a link between uh, Cork in Ireland and Portland in Maine in the US. And this link is through a scholarship from a senator, which is named and supported by Senator George Mitchell. And George Mitchell was an incredibly important person in Ireland in the early 90s. He was the chairperson of a brokering deal that resulted in a ceasefire and a cessation of military activities in Northern Ireland, which ultimately led to the signing of a, a really important deal called the Good Friday Agreement. He was instrumental in saving people's lives. And this scholarship that I was incredibly fortunate to be able to avail of was set up to just really help people understand each other by living in each other's environments and going to school, meeting with communities and the cultural exchange between the US and Ireland. It was running around the year 2000, which is not long after George Mitchell was in Ireland chairing some of those peace talks. So I went in 2003 and that was an amazing few months over in Portland, Maine. It was great. And I'm sure you forged many relationships that you still have today. Absolutely. And I learned video production, which is completely different from my other background. So I learned how to produce videos for, for TV. Ah, okay. When you got out of college, though, your first job was writing software code and in the logistics industry. You want to talk a little bit more about just that? And you clearly had a passion for supply chain. Let's talk about that. Absolutely. Well, Linda, that grew over time. So my first role was, as you say, writing software. I was writing both C++ and Java code. So the organization that I worked for first was a small boutique consultancy, primarily developing an understanding of macroeconomics and developing ways to display and help people understand what that meant. So by macroeconomics, what we did was we produced visual tools to help port authorities to visualize their hinterlands. What is the area of influence around a port that that port needs to target as where they can get their revenue from. So an awful lot of ports, especially around the time that I first started working in the early 2000s, a lot of ports were really quite typically government involved or government run, especially in Europe. They looked after all operations themselves. They were very, very good at running the port itself in terms of an engineering and a structural entity. But the understanding about what it really meant in terms of the business aspects were really only starting to develop. So we had this tool, which I helped to write, a software tool, that looked at the potential of that port in terms of where would the freight be coming from? Where would the areas of business be? Where would the freight be coming from? And where would it be going to in areas if there were shipping links, let's say linked over, especially in Ireland, it would be that the UK, France or Spain? And what would the potential return on any investment for new services be? That really helped the port to visualize where they needed to go in a one, three and five year time frame. 
and what a great way for you to start to get involved in this industry, really looking at it from that level. Absolutely. Well, coming from a background of software and in electronic engineering, I really didn't know very much about maritime sector. I didn't really know much about logistics and transport. And I really cut my teeth in that organization. It was really a fantastic foundation. I got to know an awful lot of people in the industry from ship brokers to other types of organizations. I really started to like it and I saw the potential for connectivity. So I had come from a background where I had learned how to do software coding and computer networking, but how data runs down wires is what I did in university. But I really saw that you get to learn that, but what makes things really run is people and physical connections between them. So I started to see the connections between software and data connectivity and the connections that we have in supply chain and logistics. I've met a few people over the years that have these kinds of perspectives, and it has grown. There's actually been quite a lot of investment in terms of time and research in a concept called the physical internet, where a couple of professors have been working on that. So there is an overlap, and there are some things that can be learned and gleaned from both of those. But I think that understanding of supply chain and logistics and my background then in terms of respect for where food has come from, respect for the environment has really kind of collided a little bit more recently. I hope I'm not jumping too far forward, Linda, here, just to say that what I'm interested at the moment in is really traceability and how those are linked. And that's the perfect lead into it. Traceability links your interests as a child in food, obviously, but the whole concept of traceability. But first, can you define that for our audience? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. I suppose I haven't really come across a perfect definition of traceability because it depends. But food is one of the aspects of traceability that I work in. I work in quite a few other ones as well, including the pharmaceutical supply chain. But for me, I think of it as helping consumers to have confidence in what they either buy or consume or have to use. And the traceability is many aspects that builds and shapes and influences the confidence that anybody in the supply chain would have. Traceability might mean that it's from the chemicals that were involved in your food making or just all the different levels where people touched it or had some kind of influence on it. Would that be correct? That's absolutely correct. From the ingredients that go into a product to the process whereby that product was shaped or baked or produced for your use. Not only where the products have come from and how they were shaped, but to what extent those products are also produced ethically and sustainably. And so all of those, if I had to boil that down to one set of words, it would be to have confidence. A good traceability system increases the confidence of consumers in that product. And would you say that this is a relatively new area of focusing on traceability? Or is this something that manufacturers have always been involved in? We just haven't been hearing about it as much. That's a really interesting question. I think that it's certainly becoming much more important because consumers are changing the way that we are deciding how to buy. And so therefore, I think to a huge extent, it's a new topic or it's a more prevalent topic for manufacturers to be considering at the moment. It's not new. I suppose in the last couple of decades, we've had a huge swing towards 
globalization of manufacturing and supply chain and logistics have supported that that globalization. So different ways to outsource and offshore manufacturing of different components of products, huge trends to move to lower cost areas, to also move to where products are actually produced and there has been a huge move around lean supply chains, making things, you know, manageable. And that has led to an increase in supply chain complexity. So when you've got complexity, I think that maybe one of the offsets of that has been a requirement, certainly by organizations, to ensure that they know where products are coming from. So where their own suppliers are sourcing their own products in order to help them to build resiliency within their own supply chains. So I think there's a twofold, and I suppose I've talked about my own sort of slight definition of traceability from a consumer point of view. But traceability is massively, massively important for manufacturers themselves to ensure that their supply chains are right-sized, cost-competitive, but also resilient. And no better example of that than the COVID-19 crisis, where we're hearing an awful lot about that. Without systems to help organizations to understand where their products have come from, i.e., where the sourcing has taken place, what kind of procurement has taken place for those products, and how to trace back where they've come from. In October 2019, I was working for a company called Enterprise System Partners, specialists in the manufacture and what we call serialization or unique identification and also traceability of products within the pharmaceutical supply chain. And that company was acquired in October of last year, 2019, by Accenture. So Accenture recognized the unique capabilities of that company in terms of the manufacturing automation and also of the ability to uniquely identify products that are being finished and sold as pharmaceuticals. What would be your best example, specifically in the pharma industry, with what you're doing? A lot of what I've been doing over the last say seven or eight years, Linda, has really been helping pharmaceutical manufacturers to be compliant with supply chain traceability legislation. So the different types of legislation that have been impacting the pharmaceutical industry have required them to put a code onto a box, a unique code, so that if a consumer like myself, a patient, wanted to know that that product was authentic, they could find out if that code is authentic and then there's a reassurance capability built into a system. So the idea is that there are quite a few counterfeit pharmaceutical products in the world and they're really impacting patient health, impacting safety. The extent of this really does depend on where you are in the world, but there are an awful lot of counterfeit malaria tablets in Africa. There's a lot of counterfeit Viagra in the States. There's a lot of counterfeit. There's counterfeit everything really in the pharmaceutical supply chain. And detecting that is really quite difficult. So one of the things that the pharmaceutical industry has done is introduced a way to identify products uniquely. So I've been helping over the last number of years, the enterprise system partners and our teams have been assisting pharmaceutical companies to put those codes, those unique identifiers onto pharmaceutical products and medicines so that they can be checked for authenticity. 
that's been really quite interesting to see that develop over the last few years, the legislation develop, the different systems develop around it, all of the companies coming together to do this with standards in place, with GS1 as, as a, a really important key to all of this, because all of the codes are standardized across the industry. A product that's manufactured in Europe versus a product that's manufactured in the US can now be authenticated. And not just in those countries, but also in Brazil and in China, Saudi Arabia, South Korea. So a number of different countries are introducing these kinds of legislation. It's an, And it's incredibly global. So what it means to me is that patients can be reassured of the authenticity of their product, that it hasn't been counterfeited or messed with in any way along the supply chain. Organizations that are purchasing that product can be reassured that they actually are purchasing the correct type of product as an authentic product. And it really helps, well, it doesn't completely prevent, but it does help bad actors in the supply chain from flooding the market with fake product. Absolutely. By adding that level of security, that's great. So you're juggling all this. And when I talked to you earlier, you've got obviously a very full life. You have a senior position in a global company. And, you know, in the meantime, you've also got three very young children at home. When I look at this, I'm always amazed. How do you do it? How do you juggle everything? Yeah, I don't think I can juggle particularly well, to be honest, Linda. It may look like that, but I don't know that many jugglers in my... Uh, that are actually anyway good at it. For me, I've been absolutely hugely fortunate to be the one out there in my family, but I've got a very supportive husband who does most, I'd say 90% of the heavy lifting when it comes to childcare, the home, looking after everybody, cooking. You know, I don't think I could do it without him. I feel really lucky. I do feel that I have a debt of gratitude to him Not really something that kind of hangs over me or anything like that, but I I really feel like if I'm going to be so much at home myself, then I need to be doing something that means something. You know, the work that I've been doing the last two years has been really good from that point of view. I can see it's really important that stuff is traceable and patients are being protected. I mean, that really helps me when it comes to all that kind of juggling that, you know, you're doing something of value. Something that's got meaning. And I loved what you said to me earlier, which was that you feel responsible to do your very best. And I think that really the shows through. Sure. I feel like I kind of, I owe it to myself and I owe it to my family because, you know, what's most important really at the end of the day is, is family. And when you're taken away from that and you have to go off and do all the different things, then, you know, you better make sure that you're enjoying what you're doing or else what's the point? Luckily, I have that ability and that's been, that's been super. That's great. And you know what, I just, because I know we only have a few minutes left, I was delighted to hear about your adventure side. You talked about how in college you were part of a mountaineering club where you met your husband and you do rock climbing and you also won an award. You want to talk about that with the ice climbing? Yeah, that was quite some time ago. It does feel like nearly like an entire lifetime ago. (laughs) What do you do in your 20s? It's like a whole different life when you're married with kids. But I was a recipient of award and that award allowed me to spend a couple of weeks in France learning how to ice climb and climb frozen waterfalls. And that was pretty amazing. I met people from all over. I met people from Pakistan, Russia, China. 
Amazing. All of these people congregating in rural France in the middle of January when it was extremely cold. Those skills, I brought those back to Ireland and we went on a trip with a number of people. And I would say probably one of the best days of my life in that context was spent with nine friends climbing, using those skills and climbing in Scotland, taking those leadership skills with other friends and leading a group up a gully which was full of snow and we've got a fantastic photograph of that it's in our hallway <laughs> just reminds <laughs> you you know you do kind of crazy things when you're young and uh, you know very very physical things extremely long days very cold and they how they can be so enjoyable so I suppose when you push yourself there's nothing better than a hard day on the hills on the mountains because you know they make memories and a great reason to have a great meal and some time friends at the end of it. Exactly. And those are things that I am a firm believer that, you know, they help build your character and who you are and developing those leadership skills, which you obviously have. So what's the best advice you ever got and how did it change you? Yeah, so I had a little bit of a think about this. I went to the Ice Climbing Festival. I got a scholarship or a kind of an award the first time and I went back another year. And the second year I actually fell because I got ahead of myself and I, I thought I was absolutely fantastic. I fell and I injured myself. I cracked my elbow and I injured my back. I was very, very lucky, but I crushed a vertebrae in my back and I was hauled off on a helicopter. And what I learned right down to my very soul is that you can't put yourself, you can be wild and you can be adventurous and you can do all those different things. You cannot put other people at risk. You cannot put yourself in a situation where you have an impact on someone else that has them suffer because of you. As I fell and I looked around, the first thought I had was, have I hurt anybody? Have I hurt anybody in my own fall? So that was one thing. And I, I really believe that. I mean, it's not doesn't mean that I don't take risks. It means that I don't want that to impact other people adversely and they shouldn't be impacted because of my decisions. So I think that's the advice that I tell myself. But there's two other little anecdotes that I have as well that I had a thought of. One of them is from my husband. And we're talking about caution and being careful. So the quote is from Bertrand Russell. And it says, of all forms of caution, caution in love is perhaps the most fatal to true happiness. Choosing how to be cautious and when to be cautious so as you don't affect people is one thing, but being too cautious can actually be detrimental to happiness. So I think about that a lot. I have that printed out and put into my wallet. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to do it too. <laughs> <laughs> and then last one is something that I read really or I listened to very recently. I heard a TED Talk recorded in the early 2000s by a gentleman called John Wooden. And John was a basketball coach in UCLA. And he was talking about his leadership and he was talking about success and he was talking on the topic of success and he quoted a poem and the poem is by Rudyard Kipling. And he said, no written word, no spoken plea can teach our youth what they should be, nor all the books on all the shelves. It's what the teachers are themselves. Oh, I love that. And I'm not sharing this with you, Linda, just because I'm a perfect person. It's because I have <laughs> to remember that it's me my kids, my team, 
my colleagues and my actions and my, how I speak and how I act and how I hold myself is actually what matters, how we are in the world and how we interact with the world. And that's what they learn and that's what they will become themselves. So I found that really powerful. I use it to try and remind myself to be a better mother. You know, because I can't, you know, who's perfect? Mm -hmm. Certainly I'm not. And if I can remember myself just to be as good as I can be, then that's what they'll learn from. Oh, I love it. If more people thought that way, we would be in a much better world. For sure. (laughs) All right. I feel like I could just listen to you forever. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing your journey and your beautiful insights. We wish you all the best and hope to loop back with you and get you back on the show maybe soon. For sure. Linda, thank you so much. And thanks to your team. Grania, thank you. And we look forward to our next show. So stay tuned for more great stories with amazing women. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.